0: And I'm Rin. And
1: we're here at Commonwealth Holistic Herbalism in Boston, Massachusetts.
0: On the internet everywhere, thanks to the power of the podcast. Woohoo! Yes. Well, so last time we promised that we were back to a weekly schedule, and that was definitely exactly one week ago. I'm sure of it. Let's not check the calendars. Let's
1: let's, uh, continue on. Let's continue on. You know, I'm not actually certain that we promised a weekly schedule. I believe we promised a regular schedule. (laughs) Um, I just want to, listen, there's (laughs) Boxes and bags and you know, the packing is
0: the vacuums are getting a workout.
1: Yeah, that's that's for sure.
0: The knees are getting a workout. It's great, yeah. Yeah. We're doing good.
1: We uh moving day <laughs> is September twenty sixth. We're super excited. Um but before that happens, we want to share more stuff with you. Um and we wanna continue this series on um the impacts of climate change on us as herbalists and so the plants and the, the tools that we're working with.
0: Yeah. So today's topic is going to be about how, given the impacts of climate change, we need to change our expectations and our habits around harvesting herbs from the wild, wild wildcrafting. And it's really critical that we pay attention to how plant populations are holding up to these stresses, you know, whether that's drought or flooding or both, (laughs) you know, alternating throughout the year and... Heat and cold at strange times and all kinds of things, right? Mm. So it's best to harvest only the plants which are abundant and are thriving, and to let the stressed plants rest.
1: It's like a tongue twister.
0: Let the stressed rest. <laughs> the
1: stress, yeah,
0: yeah. All right.
1: Yeah. <laughs> anyway, the problem. I mean, that sounds all really easy, right? Like obviously, if there's a plant population that's under stress under stress, then we won't harvest them this year. And if there's a plant population that's thriving, then woohoo, we can work with them. But the thing is that a lot of herbalists maybe don't have a ton of gardening experience or maybe they do, but they don't have a lot of wild plant experience. And there is nothing wrong with that. A lot of people love plants and live in places where they can't really have a garden. Um, and a lot of people live in places where they could have a garden, but they just haven't gotten to that yet. Like Mm. it just hasn't been the thing yet. So my point here is that you may have a lot of knowledge about how to work with herbs to help people and not have a lot of knowledge about the growth cycle of the plants themselves and what, what they look like at every stage and what it looks like when that plant is healthy and what it looks like when that plant is having a hard time. And there's nothing wrong with that. It doesn't make you a bad herbalist. It's just like herbalism is a really broad, deep field of study. And so if you're like, oh, man, I don't really know how to identify that in a plant. Then there is absolutely no connotation there that you might not be a good herbalist. <laughs> the, the only thing that means is just that you haven't gotten to this particular part of it yet. And there's nothing wrong with that. Yeah. But we want to talk about we want to talk about ways that you can tell, like maybe you haven't got to this yet. Well, let's get to it now. We're going to really go through and think about like, what are the signs of stress in plants and, and not just in an individual plant, but also in a whole group of plants. Maybe you have a group of plants where each individual plant looks like it's doing okay, but the group is exhibiting stress signs. Mm -hmm. So all those things, all the secret decoder ring (laughs) (laughs) ways of seeing those signs are what we're going to talk about today.
0: Yeah. But before we get into that, uh, just a quick little moment of self-promotion, if you don't mind. We want to make sure that all of our listeners know that we have an online herb school where you can learn herbalism at your own pace, on your own schedule. We have courses for students at all levels, from absolute beginners to clinical herbalists, And you can find all of it at online.commonwealthherbs.com.
1: You know, I want to share Um, our school has a dedicated community space where students can chat together without having to be on social media. You know, like a lot of people use dedicated Facebook groups or something like that. But Mm -hmm. we just wanted to not involve social media at all. So we have this community space. And after the last podcast episode, one student posted about being an accidental plant hoarder um, and got really excited about swapping plants that they had too too much of. Because the first time that they ordered, they didn't really know how much was too much or just enough. Or they were like, I, I don't know, I guess I need a pound of marshmallow leaf. That seems right. And maybe that was way too much for them or whatever. Um, so we've got all sorts of swapping going on in the community space. In fact, we have a special area just Uh, dedicated to student swaps so that if you ordered a pound of peppermint and it turns out that you, like me, don't actually like peppermint, (laughs) uh, then you can swap with somebody who maybe has a pound of something that they didn't love, but that you do or Mm -hmm. whatever. Um, So you can find our community space at online.commonwealthherbs.com. There's just a link at the top that says community. Just click it. Um, And uh, that way, if you're feeling inspired by all this to trade some of your stash, then, uh, you can do it there. Yeah. All of it, our courses, our community space, everything you'll find at online.commonwealthherbs.com.
0: All right. And, uh... Even though today we're going to be talking more about plant health than about human health, we still want to give you our reclaimer. That's where we remind you that we're not doctors, we're herbalists and holistic health educators.
1: The ideas discussed in this podcast do not constitute medical advice. No state or federal authority licenses herbalists in the U.S., so these discussions are for educational purposes only.
0: We want to remind you that good health doesn't mean the same thing for everyone. Good health doesn't exist as an objective standard, it's influenced by your individual needs, experiences, and goals. So keep in mind that we're not attempting to present a single dogmatic right way of doing herbalism that you should adhere to.
1: Everybody's body is different, so the things that we're talking about may or may not apply directly to you, but we hope that they'll give you some new information to think about and some ideas to research further.
0: Finding your way to better health is both your right and your own personal responsibility. This doesn't mean you're alone on the journey, and it doesn't mean that you're to blame for your current state of health, but it does mean that the final decision when you're considering any course of action, whether it's discussed on the internet or prescribed by a physician, is always your choice to make. Alright, let's talk about... Plants and stress, and how do we see it? What do we how look do for? I see
1: it well, you know. I want to think about this in terms, in several different terms, and the first one that I want to think about is the plant's life cycle, because, you know, plants are living beings, just like humans. I mean, they don't walk around, um, but they. Otherwise, you know, they have they have (laughs) goals, they have to do lists, they have schedules, they have all that kind of stuff. Um, And, you know, I feel like a lot of people think a lot about um, animal life and then they don't really think about plant life in the same terms just because plants are rooted in space um, that somehow that means, or because they don't have eyelashes or I don't know, like whatever, that somehow that means that they're like not as alive. Mm. Um, but they are. And, um, you know, they they want to reproduce. That is a thing. That,
0: and, and I'm <laughs> you know, going to. Ascribing agency here. It, it's, you know, it's, it's complicated, but. I think that it's, uh, what do you say, directionally accurate metaphor?
1: I think that it's It's... warranted. I really do. The more that we learn about plants and their senses and their ability to respond to their environment and whatever else. Mm -hmm. I mean, I didn't need all that. I'm satisfied with their living creatures, right? Mm. Like, that was enough for me. Um, Right. And then,
0: (laughs) yeah, every time we see a a study or a news report or whatever, where it's like, scientists now believe that plants may react to uh, damage with... um, with information transfer, which could be interpreted as pain. And we're like, well, okay, you know, like, yeah, the, you know, you hack at the tree and then it, it, you know, oozes some resin to try to seal the wound. And, uh, you know, yeah, it yeah. has to, has to respond somehow.
1: And that they communicate with each other in their, inside of their communities and also in, in their broader ecosystem, and all kinds of things. Mm-hmm. So I, I want to be clear that plants and, and plants have jobs in their ecosystems t- Also, like some plants are soil remediators and some plants are like defenders of a particular space. I'm thinking about poison ivy here.
0: Yeah. Early succession plants that are going to hold the soil together. So that's something that has deeper roots can get settled, you know, and and to
1: prevent erosion and Mm -hmm. stuff like that. Um, some plants help filter toxins out of water areas. Some plants help pull toxins out of Dirt area, like you know, soil areas.
0: Yeah, and you can you can look for that that kind of agency or that kind of responsiveness at many different scales. Like you can look at an individual organism, and you can find indications, or you can look at the ecosystem as a whole and the way that that's kind of moving and reshaping itself over time. Yeah, the same way that your gut flora change depending on your diet.
1: Yeah, yeah, sure. sure. <laughs> so I'm going to focus here on, on in terms of reproduction because that is one of the ways that we get information about how healthy a plant is. But I just want to be super clear that I, I don't want to reduce plants and, and plant lives down to they sprout, they grow, they create seeds for the next generation. They die. That's the end of it. as if Maybe there's,
0: there's, maybe there's some fruits that I can get along the way. Yeah. 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 As Turned if there was for myself, yeah.
1: no other kind of agency involved in this. Um, because plants actually have whole complex social lives. That is, it's really it's fantastic. <laughs> uh, more on this with the book, um, what a plant knows. And I think there's a new version out.
0: Yeah, there was an updated edition, I think second edition, uh, something like that came out just recently.
1: And yeah. also all of the work of um, Peter Volleben, who his first book out, I think, was The Secret Life of Trees, but he's had other ones after that. Mm-hmm. Um, and also, I think we could include The Spell of the Sensuous in here as well, even though that is not specifically about plant life.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, it is about the interconnectivity of life in general. Okay, so we all are going to accept that plants have way more going on in their lives than just reproduction. But n- right now I'm going to focus on reproduction. <laughs> um, so just like humans, when uh, when any life is stressed out, uh, then the reproductive cycle is off. And th- the way that that looks in a menstruating human, for example, is that like maybe your cycle gets too long or too short or just disappears altogether, Um, or maybe you're still having a cycle, but, um, you're not able to conceive or, you you know, which you might not know unless you were specifically trying to do that. Mm -hmm. Um, but there's different ways that we would see this. Maybe your cycle is instead of absent, it is like way too much. You're just bleeding and bleeding and bleeding, uh, way more than is comfortable and way more than, than is necessary. Um, so when we think about, the signs of stress in terms of menstruation. We're pretty familiar with those. Uh, You know, I mean, we menstruating humans are pretty familiar with those, Um, but we can ask y'all to, to imagine that.
0: To, uh, to learn about it. Yes. So that we can understand and empathize and take helpful actions, like bringing warm things or cool things or whatever.
1: Yes. Yeah. And chocolate
0: for the individual. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah.
0: Not just for the fact.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yes. But so we see this in plant life as well. And, if we think about the reproductive aspects of a plant, it's the flower and it's, it's sort of like, you know, stress can happen way before the point of the flower, but this is a place where you're likely to notice it simply because flowers are showy. Normally you see them. Mm. So if you have an idea in your mind about calendula, for example, you can just imagine what a calendula flower looks like, and maybe you can also imagine what a whole calendula plant looks like. And if you're not familiar, don't worry. The Google the Google is familiar. <laughs> so you can ask Google to show you or any other search, you know, DuckDuckGo is a good one, um, to show you cam- uh, calendula flowers and calendula plants in bloom. And you can see that... There are many successions of many flowers. Calendula is a really prolific plant. And it, it has like flowers that are blooming and at their peak. And at the same time, it has little buds that are going to bloom later. And once it gets going, it also has seed heads that are the past flowers and the seeds are developing inside there. And you can expect from a healthy calendula plant that there might be five or eight or 10 blooms at peak at any given time. And then however many of the other stages of either seed heads developing because that flower has been pollinated and the flower is passed and now the, the, the baby, right, the seeds um, is developing or... Uh, the buds that haven't opened yet and that are, are getting ready to uh, bloom and be pollinated and create seeds. Hmm. So you can consider all that. And then you can look at any given calendula plant around you. You can look at the ones in my garden, for example. Uh, Now, right now we knew we were moving this summer. And so uh, we didn't plant our garden. We just let it plant itself, um, seed itself. And we just... Um, committed to working with the volunteers in the garden which was great. Um, We got tons and tons of plants and we got some calendula but last year we had some weird weather and the calendula had trouble and this year we had some weird weather and the calendula had trouble and by trouble what I mean is any given plant is much smaller And has, like, one bloom at a time. Now, let me tell you, that one bloom is gorgeous.
0: Yeah, they look really good. They're
1: absolutely beautiful. The
0: color's nice. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And the the petals all look right, and they're not eaten up by bugs or whatever. They're not, like, they don't have weird folds or crimps in the petals. Uh, And the color is beautiful, but there's only one at a time.
0: Yeah, this this is a good point to raise, because if you were just like, oh, we'll have to look for the beautiful flowers, right? Obviously, you don't want to get the ones that have, like, you know, uh, an entire family of wasps living in yeah. them, or or they have some sort of, you know, grayish green slime uh, that's growing out of it. Like, obviously, you wouldn't you wouldn't pick that. But I think that stopping there and saying is the flower, you know, beautiful and resinous and has a smell or a color or whatever else that I'm looking for from this species, that might not actually be the end of your search.
1: Right, and in the case of this specific these specific plants. Yes, they are resinous. Yes, they are. They check all of the boxes of exactly what you're looking for in a calendula flower. It's just that there's only one instead of five or six or eight or ten. And then when we look at the blooms who are waiting to open, there's like two instead of like 20. Mm. And um, so, so that is one way when we're looking at the reproductive cycle. If we were talking about something like raspberries or blackberries, that would be a little bit easier to imagine because maybe you don't notice the flowers, but when it came to be time for the fruit, you know what a raspberry is supposed to look like and you know what a blackberry is supposed to look like. And when they're under stress, they don't look right. Mm -hmm. They have, um, like you know how in a raspberry there's each individual little red balloon, and then inside that is a little seed, right? And it's like a whole bunch of balloons. It's nine ninety nine. It's ninety nine of them. Yes, 99 absolutely. Red balloons per raspberry. Yes. Awesome. Yes. Okay. Um. So, so you can imagine that, and then imagine a raspberry that isn't looking very awesome. Many of those balloons never inflated. And so instead you see like a little grayish kind of nub that is where the seed would have been but no balloon inflated around the seed and therefore the seed was never really able to develop either. So you can imagine what that looks like on a fruit. It looks it looks the same kind <laughs> of way on calendula Ooh. in terms of there just there isn't enough development.
0: Nice. Cool. So yeah. And, and that could also be a question of timing. So not whether the development got to complete itself or whether it was kind of like halted in the middle or, you know, wasn't as abundant as, as we would expect, but also if it's super early or if it hasn't happened yet and it's getting kind of late and oh, when's the next frost, when's the first frost going to happen? Right. But, and then
1: kill everything you know. before it has a chance. Mm-hmm. That can happen because maybe your spring was fine maybe your spring was climactically all the things that the plant wanted. And then there was a point where a drought hit Mm. and that like caused the plant to sort of hunker down and not develop at all. And then um, you got moving towards fall and some rain started happening again. And so suddenly the plant is like, okay, okay, okay. I can develop now. And it's like, Kind of a race with the clock at that point of the plant trying to complete its development and create the seeds for the next year before the frost sets in that will kill that process, that will stop that process.
0: Sometimes that could be why you have a plant and it sort of looks like itself, but everything's really squanched together and, and in miniature, maybe. Mm-hmm. Uh, like, you think, aren't you usually twice as tall or <laughs> something like that? <laughs> yeah.
1: Yeah. Um, another thing that can cause a plant to be too small is wildlife pressure. You know, so if if somebody's coming in and nibbling on that plant regularly, then the plant Which I'm thinking about something like self-heal. You know, a self-heal plant in a happy spot could be a foot tall, actually. It can be 18 inches tall, believe it or not. But uh, if it's under stress because because animals keep coming by and nibbling, then it's going to only be like two or three inches off the ground. And it's going to have everything be very compact all the leaves be really dense, the, the stem mm. be short, and then the flower, and it, it's trying to get through its whole reproductive cycle before it gets eaten again. Yeah, and that, or, that
0: could be animals or it could be lawnmowers. Yeah. <laughs> there's a bunch of places, and I was taking Elsie for a walk in the park earlier, and there's a bunch of fields and areas there where it's actually carpeted and self-heal, but you can only kind of see it when you're right on top of it because um, they're really low and they're surrounded by grass, and so if you get several feet away like the angle doesn't let you really see the purple Mm -hmm. until you're sort of standing in the middle of it, which Mm. is really kind of beautiful in a way. But, but I think also they might like to not get mowed quite so often.
1: Yeah, (laughs) (laughs) I think so. I think so. Um, this can happen in the opposite direction. You can have a plant that is too tall. Um, and there's like too much space in between each set of leaves. Um, and, Often gardeners will refer to that as leggy. Um,
0: Our sage got leggy this year.
1: Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Or like the cilantro is leggy. And so it just means that there is a lot of stalk and not not that much leaf. And usually when a plant is very tall like that, it is not really getting the light that it wants. So a- this, could
0: be, this could be a plant where like maybe it's, you know, four feet tall, but it has, you know... 12 leaf nodes, uh, up that, up that height of stem where what it should have is still to be that tall, but have like, you know, 20 or yeah or
1: some, more. some other number. Yeah. 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 <clears throat> Many more leaves. So what's going on in that case is that the plant is not getting the light that it wants. And it's literally trying to stretch itself out so that it can tr- like move out from under the shade or whatever to try to capture more sun.
0: Yeah. Sometimes you'll even find that the lower leaves on that plant will have died and turned brown. We have a bunch of flea main in the backyard that's kind of doing that right now, in part because of the, the dryness stress that it's under. Mm. Um, but also from some a little bit of crowding, and there's not a lot of light for the lower leaves, and so the plant says, I don't need to keep these alive. I, right. <laughs> I've got to divert my resources upwards to where I'm going to have my, uh, my seeds and everything.
1: You know, actually that is a really good pattern, um, to talk about because there are a lot of different reasons that the leaves close to the ground can yellow or brown or die and they can reflect different things. Now, listen, sometimes it's just completely normal. Like you said, a very dense, um, crowd of mugwort or fleabane or somebody, yeah, the lower leaves, like, when they were first starting to grow, those lower leaves all were getting sun. But as the plant got taller and taller and taller, it kind of made it so that the sun wasn't getting down to those lower leaves anymore. And so they died back. That's not necessarily a problem because they they have sort of served their purpose. So if you come across plants and just the first three or four leaves at the bottom have died back or or they're yellowing, that's actually fine if that's the only problem. Um, and, and simply because those leaves, the job of those leaves was to make a bunch of food so that you could grow some more stem and grow some more leaf and get taller. They did their job. It's okay. When that's not okay is, um, actually, we have a great example of this right now. Um, we have some evening primrose. And I didn't realize how good a year it was going to be for evening primrose. And I was worried that I wasn't going to have enough seed to take with us to the new house to, to seed in the garden, to make sure that we had evening primrose there. And so in the beginning of the year, I dug up a couple of plants of evening primrose plants and just put them in one of those fabric planting bags. Um, And... I was like, great, I, this way I know at least I'll have three evening primrose plants. I'll let them go to seed. I'll have that much seed to take with me when we move. It'll be great. Um, well, I put that fabric bag on um, like a the edge of a sidewalk in our, uh, in our yard. And so it's getting a lot of sun and we had a bunch of drought. It has Southern exposure. Now listen, that's normally fine for evening primrose. It's, it, Evening Primrose doesn't mind a lot of sun. Mm -hmm. But the combination of that sidewalk, the drought, and the fabric bag, fabric fabric planting bags are fantastic, but you do have to water them more often. And I did not really water much through the drought. And so if you look at those plants right now, um, they are, they have almost no leaves at all. They have sacrificed... First off, they're shorter than they normally would be, but they have sacrificed like three quarters of their leaves. And there are only leaves up at the tippy top where the flowers and the developing seed pods are. And that is exactly the same as like a person who's pregnant and they start to like lose their hair and they start to get a bunch of cavities. No, No, it's exactly the same thing. It is, it is the body taking minerals from you to use in the development of that fetus and um you're kind of like your body is stealing from itself to provide for the next generation and plants will do this too and so the the plant is like sacrificing all those leaves which yes that means that the plant's not going to be able to make as much as much energy to complete the reproductive cycle but on the other hand it doesn't have to feed all those leaves either. So it loses the leaves from the bottom up more and more and more. And so now we have these evening primrose plants, um, who really only have, they look like Dr. Seuss plants really. They just have like a tuft at the very top and the whole stem is leafless. Yeah. Um,
0: the flowers are still really pretty though.
1: The flowers are still great. They are (laughs) developing their seed pods. There are a bunch of other evening primrose that popped up, um, around in the meantime. And so I'm no longer concerned that I won't have enough seed. And I did I did finally realize and say, oh my goodness, what? how did I get so busy? I need to water these these primos. So I do think that they're gonna end up being okay and developing good seed. But on the other hand, um, I'll let you know next spring, I am gonna separate that seed from the other plants that didn't have quite as hard of a time. Uh, and I'm going to check the germination rate of that seed. And my prediction is that it won't be as high as no. other plants that weren't under as much stress yeah. because those plants, the, the plants that lost all their leaves, they didn't have as much to put into the development of those seeds. And so, yeah, some of them are probably not going to germinate, probably more than the like normal amount of, mm. you know, I mean, with seeds, there's always a few that are duds, right? Like that's just... Yeah, That's normal, but, but there's also like an expected kind of normal percentage that don't germinate. And I think that these plants are going to produce a larger percentage that won't germinate.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. <clears throat> well, you know, the seed, I'm thinking of some other, other plants, other types of uh growth where they might have a, a problem that shows up when they're trying to make fruit, but it just never quite, never quite ripens fully.
1: Yeah. You know? Maybe it
0: it just seems to remain, it's something you're expecting to get at least a hint of sweetness, but it just remains like as sour and astringent as you can possibly
1: imagine. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah.
0: And you're like, oh, just a few more days. It's going to change. Yeah. And then sometimes it'll kind of go past that day and then now they're just rotting.
1: Yes. Like, like, oh, it's like leaves, you Mm. know, you expect in the fall. Okay. Now listen, we live in New England, so depending on where you live, this might not be true, but for us. You know, every fall we expect to have like, you know, all the pretty colors and whatever. But depending on what the weather was like over the summer, um, then the leaves will vary in their in their splendor. <laughs> but I grew up in Texas and in Texas, um, it was like one day all the leaves are green. Tomorrow, they're all bl- brown and on the ground like mm all of them at the same time. And there was never any, we had like this huge maple tree in our backyard and there was never any color that happened. It was just like one day green, the next day brown and on the ground. Um, so yeah, you can have that in the fruit too, where you're like, ah, I'm going to have so many tomatoes. And then none of them actually, (laughs) they just didn't do it. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Right. Well, and then there's other signs of stress, uh, that you, again, probably wouldn't mistake it. But if, if, the plant, or if a large par- portion of a stand of plants is being extensively attacked by some kind of insects, then that's a problem. And Actually, again, and again, try to see the whole field, right? Try to see the whole whole board there, uh, because you might say to yourself, "Well, on this side of the stand, these ones are fine. There's no mites crawling on this on this particular specimen. Mm-hmm. I'm going to grab this one and take it." You, yeah. Okay, maybe, but
1: but what you but but they're all over there and they're like marching towards yeah yeah, yeah. yeah moving at the speed of whatever that kind of bug is. Um, I've had students or we've had students who ask and say like, oh, how do I get all these aphids off my whatever? Uh, And I usually say, don't just don't even try. Don't harvest it. If you are growing something and it is just covered in bugs, don't harvest it. Um, When a plant is having trouble with bugs, that means that the plant isn't healthy. Um, so plants have immune systems, just like humans have immune systems. And that's part of the reason why plants can help us with our immune system work that we need to do. Plants have to fend off attacks from bacteria and viruses and molds and fungus and bugs, just like we do. Um, and so when you see a bunch, a bunch of bugs all over a plant, What that means is that that plant is immunocompromised. That plant is not successfully holding off the attackers. It's not creating the phytochemicals that it uses inside its body to fight off things that are trying to attack it. We have those same kinds of chemicals, they're not phytochemicals, they're like, I don't know human chemicals. Um, (laughs) (laughs) uh, But we have those same kinds of things inside our bodies that help fight against uh, invasion. And not everything is the same. I mean, plants don't raise a fever exactly. On the other hand, they do produce more and more of, of like very heating, uh, essential sure. oil content,
0: right? Or they turn themselves extra bitter or extra astringent or, or things like that, mm-hmm. right? When they when they're able, when they have the energy and the reserve required to turn up the production of these of these kinds of chemistry, then yeah, then they can survive. But if they've had a stressful year, they're less able to do that, right? They they're gonna co- they're gonna create most of these things out of um, out of sugar anyway, <laughs> <right>? <laughs> out of the yeah out of the end result of photosynthesis, so. That's kind of like the first thing that the plant uh, produces and then everything else that it makes is going to be further transformations Yeah, <laughs> from that original substance.
1: And when you're stressed out and exhausted, you're not good at transformation. Yeah. You know, like is literally the same. You get sick when you're tired. You get sick when you've been super busy and haven't had time to eat good food. You get sick when there's so much stress piled on you that you don't have time to take care of yourself. That is exactly the same for plants.
0: Yeah. For us as, as herbalists, you know, we're looking for these medicinally active, uh, you know, chemistries in the plant. And they tend to be most present when the plant both has a lot of resources, but also does face some stress, right? The stress is the trigger to produce these secondary metabolites, right? These active, uh, chemistries from the plant. The resources are required though, right? We're not just saying find the most stressed plant you can get. That's going to be the best medicine. (laughs) If it's like, you know, in a little patch of sand on the side of a asphalt, you know, uh, parking lot, that's, that's probably not going to be the best medicine around, even though it's under the most stress. So, so both parts of the puzzle have to be there.
1: It's, you know, it's just another Goldilocks thing. Um, you know, just like humans, we do require stress. A human actually, there are substances in our bodies that we have to make that we cannot make if we don't ever have any stress. Um, there are that it's it is part of being alive. We won't make any muscles if we don't have a little bit of physiological stress, right? Like push-ups are stress. Hmm. But we need the Goldilocks amount of stress. We need the amount of stress that is what we can handle in that moment or maybe just a smidge more than we thought we could handle, but oh, we could do it. And then we need rest time afterwards. That's why when you have a workout, you need a rest day after. Hmm. The plants need that too. They need the Goldilocks amount of stress with a nice rest day afterwards.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so that's what helps them to, to do well and to thrive. One thing to keep in mind is that Even if you've been visiting an area for a while, uh, you have to try to still get a sense of how conditions are, how they have been, and how they had been for quite a while longer before then. So the concern here is that maybe you've only actually ever seen a drought year, (laughs) right? Which is pretty
1: reasonable these days.
0: And then then you come around to that same area next time, and now it's like six times as abundant. And you think, ah, this is a great year. There's so much here. I can harvest a ton this time. Finally, I've been waiting. Right. And that feels pretty good. But what if this is actually just the baseline again? And what you've been seeing was extreme stress in yeah. the population. Yeah.
1: Or yeah. even like not quite to baseline. Hmm. What you see is like maybe three quarters of baseline. And, and it does look lush and and thick and and like a lot. Yeah. And yet it's only three quarters of what that that particular plant community actually expects to be. Mm-hmm. Yeah. This is one of those times where you just you have to be in relationship for a long time with a particular area to see what's going on. And we're gonna talk about that in a little bit more detail, but I want to say one other thing about uh, when we see that kind of community, it might be that you see a community and it's very small and spread out and each individual plant looks gorgeous, but that is a plant that should be growing in a thick community um, and instead there's just one plant here and one plant there and one plant over there. I'm thinking about... Things like self-heal, like nettle, like goldenrod, mugwort.
0: Yeah. I feel like this year I've seen St. John's wort a decent amount, but never a very big area. Like I could hug any St. John's wort that I come across. And if I can get my arms around it, like my arms aren't really that long, you know? Yeah. Do you get what I'm saying here? <laughs>
1: yeah. St. John's wort, when it looks really excellent, it's like a field of St. John's wort. It's like, it's longer than you. It's the, it's it's lots of St. John's wort everywhere. And yeah, I too, I keep saying, oh, it's been a good year for St. John's wort, except what I'm seeing is one St. John's wort plant here and then like...
0: A couple blocks over?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Another St. John's wort plant. Yeah. Yeah. So St. John's wort has been struggling the last few years, possibly as much as the last decade. Mm-hmm. Um, And so we're feeling right now like, oh, finally some St. John's wort. We didn't harvest any this year. Um. But, but I mean, even... I've eaten a few flowers, but... You know. <laughs> <laughs> but even for calibration, just recognizing that that's just not... Um, it's not thriving.
0: It's yeah. not. But sometimes you will find plants that really are thriving for real.
1: <laughs> yeah. Right? yeah. And
0: maybe it just likes this climate. Maybe it just likes this climate change. I mean, it happens. It happens. You know? Some
1: plants do. <laughs> um, this year, the plants who were really thriving, a rigoron on... Uh, Yara was... Bonkers this year, just absolutely everywhere, so thick. Yeah, I've never seen yarrow like like yarrow this year, and and like every herbalist in Massachusetts was saying that <laughs> yeah, during kind of cool yarrow actually. season, nobody could shut up about how much yarrow there was everywhere. <laughs> that's what you're looking for. That is the ideal plant to be working with. And listen all of the plants have many, many skills. They all can. Sure. We we think about yarrow and maybe the first thing you think about is cardiovascular health, or maybe the first thing you think about is like wound care or whatever. But listen, yarrow can do so many things in your body. And so getting really familiar each year with the plants who are really thriving and then say, okay, those are the plants I'm going to work with this year. And I feel like this is, uh, like old wives tale or like folk wisdom thing that I used to hear a lot, except in the reverse. And so what, what you would hear is, oh, the plants who show up are the plants we're going to need this year. Like it's a wisdom of the earth kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And... I, I want to think about that in reverse because thinking about it in those terms is not necessarily bad or wrong but it is exploitive um you know humans are already have already have this tendency towards exploitation at least humans in this time and place maybe not all humans always forever have uh, you, That's know, anyway. yeah. we, you know not
0: anyway yeah you know
1: but but humans right now, um, have a tendency already towards exploitation. And when we phrase something as, oh, the plants who are thriving this year are the ones that we need and and the earth has provided, then the next thing that happens for us as humans is we will over-harvest whatever has been <laughs> provided um, because we, we think that it was provided and therefore it is mine. Mm. And this happens subconsciously like you do, you're not bad if this happens in in your brain you're not bad if you did this last week when you were harvesting none yeah. of that makes you bad this is a human tendency um and this is why i'm so fussy about thinking about the way that i talk about plants because i know that i'm fighting against human tendency here and i have to do everything i can to program myself and we're going to talk about that in the next in the next episode in this series yeah. but yeah. So I like to think instead of let's look at the plants who are super abundant and learn as much as we can about them and work with the plants who are super abundant so that we can let the other plants rest. Yes it is semantics. Yes I am splitting hairs. It's a very small difference but that small shift helps me to think more in terms of who needs to rest right now and less in terms of who can I like stuff my basket full of right now. Even, even though both of these two statements are, they are saying the same thing. It's just, no, the distinction is important. It's just, it's just a little like mental.
0: Right. I mean, yeah, but things like that, they, they start out small, but then they ripple out through other places in your life and, yeah. You know, they take on a greater meaning to this uh, propagation. Yeah. Like, a, yeah, okay. <laughs>
1: yeah. So the thing is that you'll notice who's thriving before they're harvestable. And and so what what that means is that right off the bat, as soon as anything starts coming out of the ground, just take your walks, go all the places you normally go. Look at who is thriving. Look at who's getting ahead. Look at who is strong this year. Look at who isn't and think about who needs to be resting and who needs a break and who needs a little stress taken off of them. While you're looking at all this, you can also be thinking, is there anybody who needs a little extra water? Like, is there not enough water going on right now? Or um, if you're talking about your own property and or property that you manage and, um, uh, you know, property that you are in stewardship of right. and you're seeing that there are plants who are getting too much water. Is there anything that you can do to provide drainage for them? Stuff like mm-hmm. that. That's not something you can do on public land necessarily, but, <laughs> but, um,
0: there's a couple of gorilla gardeners out there. I mean, you know, yeah.
1: but, so you can think about who is looking really strong this year and who do you need to develop a deeper relationship with so that you can work responsibly and accurately with the plants who are thriving Mm. and who needs to rest this year. And do they need any support from you um, in order to rest successfully? Right? Like just like you on a stressed out day, you can have had a terrible day at work. It's the fifth terrible day at work in a row. And instead of coming home and just going to bed and getting a ton of sleep, which is probably what your body really needs, you stay up really late and watch movies and eat pizza and listen, that is super fun. And that is a, a way of coming down from stress. And there, are, like, it is totally valid to say, I have worked my butt off all week and I need some time for myself to do something enjoyable. There's absolutely nothing wrong with that. But it is not necessarily nourishing rest. And so um, we can think about the plants the same way. Like, are they resting in a convalescent way where they are being cared for and being nourished and like nursed through a hard time or are they resting like by simply being neglected? Mm -hmm. Um, yeah. So you can, you can think about how can you provide nourishing rest for the populations who are struggling?
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. And of course, even in a good year, even in a super abundant year, uh, try to be realistic about what you actually need, what you intend to do with what you're, you're going to harvest, making sure that you have everything prepared in advance that needs to be, like if this is something that needs to get harvested and go right into the jar or right into the dehydrator,
1: hmm. that
0: you have the, uh, the materials and the time <laughs> required to do all of that stuff to make sure that it doesn't go to waste.
1: I'm yeah. thinking about Terry Pratchett and uh, specifically the Tiffany Aching series. That's my favorite. Um, but at one point, uh, one of the witches, uh, says that the best place to store surplus supplies is in somebody else's belly. Like the best place. To, I think the they were, or, yeah. Yeah. I think they were talking about bacon or something at the time. Right. Um, but they were, or anyway, it was food and they were saying that the best place to store that excess is in someone's belly. And what they, what they really meant was Yes, in this particular scene, someone had paid or like compensated this particular character with food that was not necessary for her in that moment. And she could have like somehow preserved it, but somebody else in her community was hungry and needed the food. And so instead of doing something to like preserve it when she didn't really need it, she just gave it to those other people who needed it because that was a method of distribution mm-hmm. and it's a it's a kind of faith that we will we will in fact have what we need as long as we look out for one another support one another um and later when you need something then hopefully that person will be in in a better spot and they'll be able to help you out or somebody else will be able to help you out. Like sort of that it all evens out kind of aspect. Anyway, that's what that part of the story was about. And you can implement that in your herb stash as well. If at the end of each year, if you look and you say, wow, boy, I harvested way more yarrow than I really needed this year. Um, I'm gonna set a little bit aside to make tincture for for next year, but um, I'm gonna I'm gonna give this away to to folks because I, I don't I clearly did not need all of it this year and so I'll save a little bit for myself for next year. I'll give the rest away. When we do this, we are supplying one another and you'll actually end up with a greater diversity of plants to work with. You'll end up with, lots of cool stuff from <laughs> each other when you look at what you've got left at the end of a year and say, well, Claire, I should give this stuff away <laughs> instead of just hoarding onto it for a really long time. And then it's 10 years later and you're like, I never used this, right? Mm-hmm. Like just, just let it be used up mm. All right. except used, not used, but let it be, let it be shared up. How about that? <laughs> That's better. Share okay. it up.
0: <laughs> and appreciate it, yeah. Yes. For sure. Right. Well look, when we were when we're thinking here about the the plants out in the fields, the plants that we're thinking about harvesting and and uh taking home and making it into medicines and then sharing with everybody. Um, when we're starting with those plants and we're trying to see whether they're thriving or whether they're under a lot of stress, this is about attention and it's about patience, right? We've been trying to bring forward that you can't really know all of these things. The first time that you go visit a plant or you visit an area, you have to develop an ongoing relationship with the landscapes that we harvest from and from the plants that we gather there, you know? And I think about how this is, there's a parallel here uh, to developing an ongoing relationship with a client or a customer or whatever community of humans that you may be serving as an herbalist in whatever way that you are an herbalist, Mm. (laughs) right? Taking the time to observe and respond to climate level and ecosystem level stresses will help you to get better at observing and responding to health stresses and economic stresses and social stresses and all of these other kind of things, right? Mm-hmm. It helps you to, to see the bigger systems at play. And the more that you do that, the more that that awareness shows up in all of the other areas of your life yeah. and it makes you a better herbalist. Whatever, yeah. whatever kind of herbalist you're doing, right? I was trying to include not just, like, clinical herbalism is where we focus most of our attention. Yeah. But, you know, if you're gardening, if you're making medicines and, and selling them to people or bartering or whatever.
1: Or if you're supporting your community or you're mm. teaching or whatever else. Yeah. yeah. The more that you do this work first just among the plants themselves, and then you won't be able to help it. That type of awareness will start transferring over to your human communities. You, you develop it in the plant community. I mean, you can also intentionally develop it in the human community too, but it is the same skill. And so the more that you work on this skill, the more that you see systems of health, systems of stress, systems of who's thriving and who is not doing well, In communities and that makes you better able to serve Mm -hmm.
0: yeah maybe we can step back for a moment and say why are are we even interested in foraging like we humans we people who are googling podcasts about (laughs) herbalism so we can learn more about foraging herbs you know why are we interested in this at all right I think for a lot of people it's because the image that we have of foraging is all about getting something that can help us or the ones that we take care of and getting it for cheap or getting it free Right. And there are a lot of issues with that, that image or that idea, starting with the true cost of labor, labor time and the true cost of the production of the phytochemistry on the plant, on the part of the plant itself. Right, right, (laughs)
1: right. right. But even if you just think about labor of an individual, like... Mm -hmm. Uh, it takes a really long time to go out and find something and watch it until it is the peak of ripeness so that then you can harvest it and then actually harvest it and then mm-hmm. process it, whether you're going to tincture or dry it or whatever you're going to do, and then get it all ready and then have it, 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 like, that's a ton of work, actually. It is not free. Yeah,
0: <laughs> yeah. right. But so, you know, the but the, the thing I want to say is that there are problems with that idea, but the desire for something helpful and inexpensive isn't wrong, right? That's, no. <laughs> that's, that's great. We want to have that. And it turns out that there are accessible and inexpensive herbs who can help out with a wide variety of common health issues. And you can find them in a wonderful place called the grocery store. <laughs> <laughs> um, but listen, you should check out our herbal community care toolkit uh, for a targeted exploration. Of widely available, inexpensive, multifaceted herbs and weeds, also, who you can learn to work with to support yourself and your own community.
1: Yeah, there's really, you know, we think about all the different places we think about in our like cottage core image of where herbs come from and what it looks like to be an herbalist and whatever. But like, seriously, parsley, y'all. You can get <laughs> it for cheap at the grocery store, and it is an astoundingly potent medicinal plants.
0: Yeah. I think in the, in the, um, actions of creating and, and producing this course, we both really got a new appreciation for parsley Yeah, um, <laughs> and the different yeah. ways that it can help people out with cardiovascular issues, with water retention, just as a nutritive agent, you know, lots of different reasons. But so we explore parsley and I think 34 other, uh, Yeah, there's a, list, herbs.
1: there's a list of them there yeah. on the website for it. But, um, It's a, this course is available on a donation basis, so. Um, you can choose a donation level that is appropriate for your budget. And if none of the donation levels are appropriate for your budget, just send us an email and we'll send you a code that will give it to you for free. Um, you don't have to like apply or anything like that. You just send us and just say, Hey, I want the code and we will give it to you.
0: Yeah. We want lots of people to have this information and also to share it. Please <laughs> yeah. to share that widely. Um, we believe that mutual aid and community building are really the only way that, we're going to survive, you know, Mm long-term. So let's get started, right?
1: Yeah. 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 So anyway, that is the herbal community care toolkit. You'll find it right at the top um, of the catalog. And when you go to online.commonwealthherbs.com.
0: And I'll also put a link right there in the show notes.
1: Yes. Yes. And it's right next to a couple of free courses also. And so uh, you should grab all of them. I mean, why not? Right. They're free. You should grab them. (laughs) They are there for you. They are abundant and, uh, they're thriving. And so you can have them.
0: (laughs) Nice. Very well done. Okay. So that's (laughs) at online.commonwealthherbs.com. This has been the Holistic Herbalism Podcast. We'll be back next week with some more next week. Well, next time.
1: We'll see. It it might be next (laughs) week. It might be.
0: Um, until then take care of yourselves, take care of each other, Drink some tea.
1: Drink some tea.
0: And take care of some outside plants too, will ya?
1: Yes. Yes.
0: Alright, thank you.
1: Bye-bye.